Hi, my name is Jim. This is Jim Warfare, the Battle of Ideas. Um, when I set up this conversation uh, with um, Dr. David Klatzer last week, I actually forgot that today is a public holiday. Turns out that it's Women's Day, and in a weird, in a weird twist of fate, it's perhaps a brilliant um, coincidence. Good morning, uh, David. Good morning, Jim, and hello to all your listeners. Yeah. So, can you believe it? So. By sheer chance, we set up uh, this conversation on Women's Day. <laughs> yeah, well, unfortunately, the woman that we're going to be talking about uh, is sadly no longer with us, and mm. uh, it might be really, really, really appropriate to talk about uh, this sort of thing on Women's Day when the is- the, uh, the incidence of gender-based violence is growing in South Africa and is such a major problem. Yeah, well, Women's Day was technically yesterday, but today's a public holiday because, as you know, the Sunday just gets shifted across to the Monday. But nevertheless, it's all the same. Um, so, listen, David. Uh, before I go any further, um, your 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 setting is much better than last week. <laughs> you look you look you look smart and intelligent today. <laughs> it's amazing what a few books can do. <laughs> so, listen. Our our chat last week was 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 about the Helderberg. It was great. Uh, lots of really good response um, i'm hoping very much the same but yes the thing so i chatted to a few people over the last few days about this conversation Ingolotz. a lot of people actually have either forgotten about it or don't know about it so in a nutshell quickly what actually uh, happened it was 2005 yeah well in 2005 there was a a murder in stellenbosch just outside of stellenbosch in the heart of the winelands and the victim was a young woman uh, who had both brains and beauty to her credit, and she was an actuarial student at Stellenbosch University. Her name was Inga Lotz, and uh, she was found brutally murdered in her flat just after 10 o'clock on the, in the evening by somebody uh, who went to go and look there, uh, in response to the fact that nobody had been able to raise her or phone her or get contact with her since earlier in the afternoon, sometime after four o'clock. Now, the uh, she was, uh, uh, as I said, a young woman, and she was having a relationship. She was in a very serious relationship with a young man by the name of Frederick Barend van der Pfeiffer. And Fred van der Pfeiffer uh, obviously became a prime suspect for a number of reasons. Firstly, in a, in a murder, you normally look to people closest to the victim who are in a physical or emotional relationship with the victim because we as a species, humans, are peculiarly prone to murdering our lovers and our close associates. Mm. But uh, there was, uh, uh, certainly Fred fell into the frame of suspects early on in, in, in the, whole, the whole tragic scenario. What then happened was the police made precious little progress for a while until there was a huge public outcry. There's nothing like a beautiful body uh, to, uh, to rouse the public opinion. Um, and uh, this beautiful, intelligent woman, there was no response or very little progress on the part of the police. And they brought in a policeman from Johannesburg called Atti uh, uh, Trollope. Now, 
from then on, things started to move quite quite quickly. Um, Inga had last been seen alive at just after around about four o'clock when the Tylers at her <coughs> new block of flats uh, uh, saw her entering the mm. block of flats. It was a set of apartments um, in quite a well-to-do area of Stellenbosch. And what then happened was that um, nobody could raise her. But there was proof of her being alive. Uh, she'd been to a local video shop and hired a video called The Stepford Wives just after 3 o'clock. So we knew she was alive at 3 o'clock. And we knew that she'd been seen after 4 o'clock. The next contact with Inga was with her body at some time after 10 o'clock that evening. And as I've said to you, suspicion fell upon Fred. Now, the police then investigated it, and they managed to do it in the most inept way possible. Uh, the first thing is they brought in a, a, a captain called Captain Bruce Bartholomew, who was in charge of the sort of scene of crime, what we would call in England the soccer, the scene of crime officer. Um, and the first thing that Bruce had to do was he had to line all the policemen who'd been traipsing all over the flat up on the outside to see who'd left marks and who hadn't left marks. He had to examine all their shoes to see if they'd possibly left a mark in blood in the bathroom. And when he found out they hadn't, he turned his attention to that bloodstained mark in the bathroom. Now, the next thing was this, that they lifted a fingerprint. And a fingerprint was lifted from the cover, according to the police, of the Stepford wives. Now, Fred's, Fred's entire defense was based on what is called in law an alibi defense. I wasn't there. I couldn't have been there. And I certainly was somewhere else at the time of the murder. And Fred could prove that by showing the records from Old Mutual where he worked, which had him checking in and checking out. Uh, and the times could be accurately placed because Old Mutual has got a security system that rivals Fort Knox. You can hardly get in and out to have a cup of coffee there to go and talk to your broker, but be that as it may, it's a very tight system. Now, Fred, uh, the police looked very hard and long and tried to prove that Fred had left the building in the period of his alibi, but of course, the finding of Fred's fingerprint on the DVD color meant that he had to be there after the DVD was hired, which meant that he had to be in the flat after three o'clock. And had that fingerprint withstood the court process, it would have put Fred away for the rest of his life. So I was brought into the case at a very early stage, round about this stage of the case. And one of the things that I and the other fingerprint expert noticed was that this particular fingerprint lifted from the DVD cover had curved lines on it that were about just over 80 millimeters apart. Now, on a uh, DVD, there aren't straight lines, or rather there aren't curved lines 80 millimeters apart. The DVD cover is considerably wider than that. And when you lift a fingerprint, you lift part of the background. So the lifting of the fingerprint from the surface on which it was by means of a type of sticky tape called Foline, that would pick up straight lines, not curved lines. Okay. And very early on, we were convinced that this fingerprint had not been lifted from the DVD cover. 
And we examined, I went out to the flat and we examined the flat for a curved surface on which the fingerprint could have been placed and which could have been mistaken. Mm. It just so happens that the police officer who was rather whimsically named Elton John Schwartz <laughs> seemed to make a complete hash of the picking up of the fingerprint. Number one, he didn't label the fingerprints. You always label the fingerprint that you pick up at the scene of the crime with the time, the place, the date, and the surface on which you pick it up. He didn't do that. And those were only labeled sometimes quite a quite a significant time after the event when the exact memory of what had happened and how you lifted them, etc., had faded. So by this stage now, the fingerprint was under serious, serious attack. Uh, the net result of that was that um, the police then took it back for a second look uh, to some of their fingerprint experts in Pretoria who agreed with the defense saying that the fingerprint was in fact not lifted from the DVD, but lifted from a glass. Now, of course, there are many glasses, and there's no problem about Fred being in the flat and leaving his fingerprint on the glass. The DVD was the absolute killer had he left his fingerprint on the DVD. And at the opening of the trial, the prosecutor, uh, Christenis van der Feyfer, uh, strangely named van der Feyfer, but spelled differently, uh, but he told the judge that they were not relying on the fingerprint for a conviction. So the fingerprint was out of the game altogether. Mm. Uh, can I sorry? Can I just stop you just for a second? Because um, some people are asking. Just uh, before you go into the details, um, we're in 2020 now. What? Where? What is the outcome now? Is it? It's, it's an unknown. It's an unknown. Unknown murder. It's an unknown okay. murder, and Fred van der Feyfer is free. Nobody knows who killed her. Okay. Right. Okay. okay. So that's where we are. The authorities. They are convinced it was Fred. Okay, um, right. <clears throat> they've closed the case. Fred has been found innocent, and you can never reopen the case, even if Fred came out in the open and said, I did it. You right. can't reach it. Okay, right. Sorry. Sorry, for, sorry for interrupting. Please go on. Not at all. Okay, so now the fingerprint, the fingerprint, which would have been the key piece of evidence, is now gone. But there was a second piece of evidence, and the second piece of evidence was a bloodstained mark in the guest bathroom. And Bruce Bartholomew, as I said, went around to all these cops who'd been traipsing all over their place with their size 10s, and um, he looked at their feet, and it didn't appear to come from any of their feet. But he maintained that he'd found a, a, a training shoe belonging to Fred, which had made that mark. Now, that is also quite a useful piece of evidence if you can prove it. It's become less useful over over the over time. Remember, now we're in 2020, and there's been a lot of discussion about comparison marks. But in that particular instance, uh, what had happened was that Bruce Bartholomew said this mark was made by Fred's trainer. Now he could only have done that had he been in the flat with a trainer and stood in blood and somehow transferred that blood to the bathroom floor. <clears throat> now, in order to in order to do comparisons, they, the police and other people make use of a thing called ACE-V, which is a method that they use of comparing pattern marks. And they look at it, they examine it, they, 
they count up the number of marks that are similar, etc., etc., and then they need to get a verification step. So they need to get somebody else who's not involved with the case to look at the mark and say, yes, you're right. <clears throat> Bartholomew could get nobody in South Africa to verify the mark for him. <clears throat> and so what he did was he persuaded the police hierarchy to send him over to the States where he met up with a man called William Bodziak. <clears throat> now, William Bodziak is the kind of superstar, superstar of footwear comparisons. He's the man who put the nail in the coffin of O.J. Simpson at the subsequent civil trial by identifying the bloodstain mark made by O.J. Simpson's shoe. And he could name the size of the shoe, and he could also name the make of the shoe from that. So he became a bit of a superstar, and he's also the author of probably the best book on the subject um, uh, that is available for forensic scientists today. And what happened was Bartholomew went across to him, took whatever evidence he had, and went across to, to Bodziak, and Bodziak told him in no uncertain terms that this didn't even come to the first baseline of any kind of useful evidence. However, this didn't bother Bruce Bartholomew because he communicated back with the prosecution that Bodziak had uh, said what a wonderful job he'd done, how wonderfully the footprint had matched up, um, how the criticism which I'd leveled at the footprint was that of an amateur and clearly obvious somebody who knew nothing about footprint analysis, and that there was no need for him, Bruce, uh, or him, William Bodziak, to come out to South Africa because Bruce Bartholomew was best placed to give the evidence. And that evidence, that, that information was conveyed to the prosecutor, and they determined not to call Bodziak. And in any way, he'd, 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 he'd indicated that he was not intending to come to South Africa under any circumstances. So they felt confident that this couldn't be challenged. What then happened was the advocate involved and the attorney involved contacted Bodziak, which they could do now that he was no longer a potential state witness. And Bodziak sent back a, an email, of which I have a copy, uh, saying, I'm both astounded and amazed at the number of lies told in this communication by Bartholomew. None of it is true. Number one, I told him that it didn't constitute a match. Number two, his work that he'd done was sloppy and sort of really not up to, up to any kind of acceptable standard, etc., etc. Unfortunately and sadly, the prosecution did not communicate this, uh, this evidence from, uh, from Bodziak to the process, to, to the defense. And we then got an, an email from uh, Bodziak, uh, and the prosecution fought tooth and nail to keep that email out of court, which again, I'll come back to in a minute, is wrong. Uh, they fought absolutely tooth and nail, saying that you can't use the email unless you call the witness, which technically in law is correct. You've got to call the witness. But in a situation like this where a man's future and life depend on it, you need to be a little more circumspect about how you apply that particular piece of law. Anyway, the net result of all of that was that um, the, the footprint was now under, under serious attack. The final piece of evidence which could have linked Fred to the, the, the crime was the fact that Inga had been murdered by several blows to the head from a blunt object in, 
in in addition to being stabbed multiple times. Okay, hang on. Sorry. So 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 just before we continue, she had been stabbed a few times and and and, and hit in the head with something and bludgeoned. Yeah. And the police thought that that something that she'd been hit on the head was was an ornamental hammer. Now you see Jeez. these ornamental hammers around. This one happened to have been given to Fred by Inga and her parents on a previous Christmas, and the the hammer was there. It's a, it's a smallish thing, and it's an ornament that you find in a pub. It's got a bottle open on the one side, and it's got a little hammer on the other side. What you want that for, I don't know. But anyway, it's one of those ornamental hammers. And the police tested that hammer uh, uphill and down dale, and they sent it to an, an, a number of their forensic people uh, in Cape Town, Uh, one of whom was Charlene Otto, and I will speak more about her in a minute. But the police could find no association of the hammer, rather the the forensic DNA people could find no association of the hammer with the murder. There was no blood on the hammer whatsoever that could be demonstrated. There was some DNA, but you'd expect some of Fred's DNA to be on it, Mm. but they couldn't identify it. But there wouldn't be, I mean... If you're hitting, okay. if, if you're hitting with a blunt object, it's not going to draw blood. It will draw blood. Will it? Particularly, okay. on the, particularly if you break the skin on the scalp. Okay. The scalp is the scalp is very very vascular. And if ever, if ever you cut your head, you'll see it bleeds far more than the size of the cut would indicate, and that's because the scalp is a very 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 vascular right. organ. Okay. Now, that being so. The police then took the hammer and they tested it to see whether they could make wounds on the head of a sheep uh, using this hammer. Shame. And, and well, no, it was a, a sheep head. They'd got it from the okay. mortuary. Uh, and it's the inappropriate uh, way of testing it, by the way, because sheepskin is in no way like human skin. They should have used a severed pig head. But that was that's a different issue altogether. What happened then was they used the hammer to do it, and on the first blow of the hammer, it bent so badly they thought they'd broken it. All of this was videoed. Now we had the situation where it's, oh dear, plan B, what are we going to do? So they went and found another hammer, and they found another hammer which was about 40% stronger and bigger than than the, the hammer that they'd used. And they concealed that piece of evidence from the court. So now we had Fred as the prime suspect, and the only pieces of evidence which could have linked him to the the murder was the fingerprint, which by now was trashed, the footprint, which became trashed subsequently in the trial, and the hammer, which could show no signs of any interaction between Fred and it and Fred and Inga. So all three pieces of evidence which would have been useful in putting Fred in jail for the rest of his natural life, were now trashed by three mm. factors. Num- incompetence, number two, stupidity, and worst of all, dishonesty, because all the cops, except except the fingerprint fellow, mm. the fingerprint, whimsical uh, Elton John, didn't, didn't um, lie, I don't think, about it. I think he was just totally confused. He was inexperienced, and he gave several versions under oath, and he just didn't know what he was doing. So that's incompetence. Uh, just quickly, but, uh, you've been corrected. Just someone says sheep heads don't come from a, a mortuary, but I think we all know what David means. Uh, sorry, from an abattoir. Sorry, sorry, he's quite correct. Abattoir. Um, the uh, 
the, the net result of all of this was that the Bartholomew's evidence by now, at the end of the state case and at the end of cross-examination, had had been called into serious question. And during cross-examination of the of the police expert on the hammer, uh, he he was found to be lying to the court. In fact, he had he had the actual hammer they used in 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 his briefcase, but. Uh, he told the court during the proceedings that he'd used the original evidence hammer. So that was that was a dishonesty that was designed to mislead the court and to achieve a conviction. Mm-hmm. The net result of all of this was that the the defense decided to call a number of people, and they called they called quite an interesting group of people together. Number one, they got out Bill Bodziak. He came out at great expense to give evidence, and he trashed Bartholomew's evidence. Number two, they called two fingerprint experts. Um, uh, the first one was from uh, from uh, the, the Netherlands called Uri Zielenberg. Uh, and Uri was a, also kind of superstar in the fingerprint world. He's really Mr. Fingerprint in, in, in Holland and uh, on, on Interpol and all sorts of places. He's right up at the top level with everybody who knows anything about fingerprints. And the second fellow they called was a fellow by the name of Patrick Wertheim who'd been for many years fingerprint expert with the FBI and had gone private, and he'd been involved in a number of high-profile cases um, in in the world that that had immense problem. You know, that was it. Was, there were very prominent cases in the world, and and he was well known. And they trashed the fingerprint, and then of course we had the lying testimony of Captain Moritz, who was prepared to lie flat out to the court about what he'd done and what information he had uh, and how it related to the case. The net result of all of this was that there was really no evidence whatsoever and the police, despite immense effort, and when I talk about immense effort, could not get Fred onto the scene. There was just not enough time for Fred to have left Old Mutual when he was seen leaving on camera and video and, and checking out, there was not enough time for, he, for him to have got to Stellenbosch, committed the murder, and washed up and got back in time to meet up with his friends a short while later. There just wasn't time. And Sorry, it I was important for him to have done that. Yeah, and just to quickly, I, I've, got to, I've got to interject because um, before I lose that, that, that the train of thought was was there any um evidence that her and and him were fighting or having a lousy relationship no there there was there was very fact look i don't think there's ever been a relationship in the history of mankind where there's never been a disagreement between male and female or male and male or female and female partners Mm. everybody so i don't think those exist and in the best relationship, there will always be a disagreement. And there was a faint evidence of a letter that Inga had written about a disagreement they'd had about something which, in the scheme of things, is relatively minor. Mm. Uh, it was it was an issue relating to um, she was worried about uh, her father. And, and her father is a marvelous, a wonderful man. This, it, I don't know why this ever happened to him or how it mm. could have happened. Mm. He's, a, he's a very top radiologist. Professor of Radiology, and and, Fre- on a and, week- and Fred wasn't known for anger tantrums or anything like that. No, Fred wasn't known for anger tantrums. Although there was there was a cottage industry in the media about making up all sorts of story about Fred. 
not not least of which that he killed before, uh, all of which was uh, was journalistic invention of the highest order. And in fact, one particularly half-witted journalist said to me, "She knew Fred had done it because she could see it in his eyes." Oh. Okay, that's that's a that's a great way of establishing fact, uh, particularly for a journalist. Um, and uh, the the net result of all of this was that at the end at the end of the of the of the of the, uh, the, the state case. The defense asked for a, a, a discharge in terms of Rule 174. That was refused by the judge, okay? And he put Fred on his defense. And Fred's experts gave stellar evidence in this whole issue. And even at the end, they decided not to call Fred because there was nothing for him to answer. You, normally, you don't put your witness in a witness box if there's nothing to answer. But uh, there was an indication from the judge that he would take that uh, as a very negative sign if they didn't put Fred in the witness box. And so they got the late Henry Fulyun, who was uh, one of the, the most senior advocates at the Cape Bar, to reopen the case. And they put Fred in the box. And the, the prosecutor, a woman called Corinne Tiernison, uh, was desperate to cross-examine Fred. And in fact, uh, she she got not a single concession out of Fred. There was nothing that there was nothing that she asked Fred, which even required clearing up under re-examination. So, I mean, the as as has been said in the British Parliament, her cross-examination was like being savaged by a dead sheep. <laughs> it was useless, um, and Fred was acquitted. Now, the problem about this case is, you know, there are two kinds of not guilty verdict. One is when you found not guilty on a technicality. And that is legal not guilty. You're legally not guilty. It has the same effect effectively as uh, um, uh, the other form of not guilty. But there's factual not guilty. And if you didn't do it, you didn't do it. And it's, it's so, in other words, so in other words, it's innocent. The one, the one not guilty means that you're not necessarily innocent. You just cannot be shown to be guilty. Correct. Correct. And in fact, the Scots have a... a, a a way of saying it and saying not proven. Okay. But the point is that our courts don't have that. So you're either guilty or not guilty. And you can't say, you know, um, that uh, you're not guilty, but you make free to go now, but don't do it again kind of thing. You, you can't do that. Mm. Our courts don't have that uh, facility available to them. And the net result of all of that is that Fred then uh, walked out of court a free man, an innocent man. They then, the family, and I think, I think it was a mistake to go after the, 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 the costs of the case because they pursued the police for malicious prosecution, basically. They said there was never anything, uh, and they pursued the police for malicious prosecution. Who? And who? The, Sorry, who pursued the police? Family, the, Fred's family. Fred's family pursued the police. There were, there were two civil trials where the police were now... Uh, sued in a civil court for the wasted costs uh, of of pursuing Fred. Yeah, it was big. It was a large amount, wasn't it? Yeah, there were many millions involved. Mm. Um, I I can't remember the exact figure, but it, uh, a figure of something like seven or eight million rand mm. in the first trial comes to mind. And that trial was held in Cape Town. The first trial on that was held in Cape Town in front of uh, um, a judge called Feltazen. And Feltazen 
agreed with the the plaintiff in the matter, that's Fred's family, he agreed with them that there had been malicious prosecution. Of course, the police the police then appealed that, and it went before the High Court, and uh, another judge called Fritz Brandt uh, reversed reversed that that situation. So Fred ended up at the end of the day not only not getting any money uh, to cover his costs, but he ended up himself with a hefty costs bill, which has now been settled, and everybody's free to go their own way. But the point here is a very, very important one, namely that although forensics plays a vital role in many trials, civil as well as criminal trials, although forensic plays that vital role, uh, it has to be done correctly. It's not a case that you can do it sloppily. It's not a case that you can do it by making up the facts as you go along, although that gets done quite often. Um, but in this particular instance, had Fred's father not been a substantial man, he was a wealthy farmer, he had the wherewithal to fight this case. Had that not been the case, Fred would have gone to jail for a crime which he certainly did not commit. And even today, I've given many lectures on this particular topic. If I ask the audience at the beginning of the lecture whether they think that Fred did it and got away with it, about a third to a half the audience think that he did and that he got away with it. And certainly the prosecution uh, think that he got away with it. They are convinced that he did it, despite the fact that there's not a shred of evidence. And I know that you said to me a few days ago that this was also a trial by media. Yes. It was very much a trial by media. The, 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 the press coverage was disgraceful in that it, it had basically found Fred guilty from the word go. And the slanting of the media representations all along, right throughout the trial, it was very closely monitored by the press. There were the press benches were chock a block every day. Um, the, the press had come to the conclusion, and as I said, there was this particularly half-witted uh, uh, journalist for the, for, I think she worked for the Sunday Times, um, who knew that Fred had done it because she could see it in his eyes. Um, so it was that kind of level, and the level of rumor, and the level of, of uh, false reporting uh, was really very serious, and uh, I think that somebody should take a good look at that, that, that itself. That way in which that trial was reported is worthy of a, 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 a somebody doing research on that in journalism mm. and a very good thesis on it. Um, and I, I, I suspect that up until perhaps the um, uh, the Oscar Pistorius case, this was probably the most covered uh, murder case um, by the media in South Africa. Yes, yes it was. Uh, the Oscar Pistorius case... Uh, put that into second second place by a long way mm. but uh, the certainly at the time it was headlines every day um, and it was it was very much the while the trial was running it was headlines headlines all the way did you ever meet fred oh yes no i i was a consultant to fred and his family and in fact when they brought i was the first person to comment on the footprint when they brought the footprint to me, um, I was I was on holiday and they, they drove out to my house and, and, and they brought the footprint uh, that the police said was a match. And I can remember exactly what I said to them. I said, you know, um, 
not only can I tell you this is not a match, I can't even tell you that this is a footprint. And as far as I'm concerned, I, I just read a book um, by John Mortimer, a famous advocate in, in fictional advocate in London called Rumpola the Bailey, where Rumpola, a, word, a phrase sprang to mind where I said, I said to Fred's father, as far as I'm concerned, this could be a piece of budgerigar vomit. That's how bad the footprint was. And that's the, that's the, uh, the comment that I made uh, to Fred's family, which they conveyed to the prosecution and obviously conveyed to uh, Bruce Bartholomew. And that is the comment that he claimed that Bodziak had answered by saying, it's clear I knew nothing about it. Um, but what happened then was that Fred's father and I had a disagreement. He wanted me at that stage to write a report saying that the moment the prosecution get their hands on a report from the defense saying that this footprint is so much rubbish, they will abandon ship and mm. that'll be the end of the trial. Well, Fred's father, unfortunately, did not know the prosecution. I do know the prosecution. And I knew that that would be a very dangerous and tactically very wrong thing to do mm. uh, for both me as a witness, for Fred as the accused, and for the case in general to do that. There, there are timelines where you give the sort of evidence. Can I not... So can I not throw a spanner at you and say, um, and say, look, you you were paid to um, try and show that uh, Fred did nothing wrong? Yeah, you can, and in fact, in fact, uh, it. I've got a collection of those spanners. Okay, there, there are lots of people who've thrown that spanner at me, and particularly, particularly the state and the state pathologists always claim that anybody who acts for the defence is a hired gun. That is not true. Mm. They maintain, and in fact, the professor of forensic pathology uh, at Stellenbosch University went so far as to say he could never, never, ever trust any of his colleagues in the in the private giving evidence because they were paid to give evidence. Well, he's an idiot because he was he's paid to give evidence. He's paid to give evidence by the state. And mm. one of the things that people do not understand well about forensic experts about expert evidence in court in our country and everywhere else is that the expert is not giving evidence for the side that calls him. My duty as an expert is to give evidence of a factual scientific nature to the court, even if it harms my client. Mm. And my side that has called me has to understand that. They understand that although I'm technically acting for them, I'm giving factual evidence and I am the court's witness. And if, and I can tell you many times I've said to my client, you dare not put me in a witness box. You will hang yourself with your own expert. You cannot put me in a witness box because this is the fact. This is where you're going. Uh, this is what I will say. David, I've got a question from, from, from Kerry. She says, okay, surely the prosecution looked at other possible perpetrators either before Fred was arrested or after he was acquitted. No. No, they didn't. They, they, this, is the, this is the sad thing about it, is that they, they got a blank spot about it. They were convinced. And in fact, one of the prosecutors said to me, Fred did it, he was acquitted, end of story, we're not looking for anybody else, he's our man. In as many words. So what it means is that the person who killed Inga is out and walking around free. And unless something remarkable happens, 
it, it, it will be an unsolved murder uh, that will never, ever bring justice for Inge Lotz. So uh, the police didn't look for it. Um, and that's one of the major issues when you get tunnel vision. If you start in forensics with a tunnel vision where you believe somebody is guilty and you look for the facts that support that, right. that's exceptionally dangerous. It produces a kind of cognitive bias which is hard to get away from. Okay, so then what happened, David? I mean, what, what happened? I don't know what happened. I, I don't know what happened. What I do know is this, is that there are other suspects. Um, I'm not mad about the notion of being sued for defamation. I've got definite ideas about how this could have happened, okay, which don't fit into the, the, the current narrative. Um, but I'm not prepared to air those because mm. I don't have sufficient proof. All I can tell you is that despite enormous effort to link Fred to that murder, they couldn't link him in any way, shape or form to the murder, apart from the fact that he was uh, her boyfriend. And, you know, one, one can be cynical about this. I mean, I, I very well remember a, a a rather cynical judge being told that his client had no murder, um, no motive for murdering his wife. And the judge, who'd obviously had a long experience on the bench, said to him, Mr. Sernso, marriage is motive enough. <laughs> okay. But the point is that that's a level of cynicism which falls so far short of proof that it's, uh, it, it, it's an entertaining and amusing anecdote. But there was not a shred of evidence to link Fred to that case. And the police really ought to have gone after and started looking for other people. They have the wherewithal. And, you know, there's something else that needs to be said about this. That people who get involved in criminal trials think that you're playing on a level playing field when you are charged and you think, okay, the courts are fair and, and the police are fair and they're not going to go after the wrong person. That's not true. You're playing on a grossly uneven playing field if you're accused of a criminal offense. Uh, hugely. Number one, you don't get access to experts easily. Yeah. Number two, you get access to the scene easily. Number three, when you do get access to the scene, it's already been stomped all over and you're dealing with a disturbed scene. And number four, you don't have access to the sophisticated laboratory paid for by your taxes that the police have access to. So, David, are you saying then that, that um Unless it was for people like yourself who who have a good eye for for forensics, Fred kind of had no chance. Fred would have been had Fred's father not had the money to throw at this case, and he threw a lot of money at the case. The sort of money that I know you have in your back pocket, Jim, but most of us don't. <laughs> he threw millions at this case um, in order to he had to fly people over. The only one who didn't come at a cost or a major cost was Ari Zeelenberg, who was sent. The, the, the Dutch government were horrified by what had happened. <clears throat> and they sent Ari Zeelenberg out at no cost, okay, other than his out of pocket expenses uh, to give evidence in this trial. So he had no axe to grind. Um, and Bodziak came out at a significant cost, including a first class plane ticket from the States. Um, and not cheap to. Uh, to house and water these people when they're here. But the point is that without that kind of resource, mm. being a dead duck. It sounds like you're saying that from the start, the state had an agenda, the state prosecution. 
No, I, I wouldn't put it that far. I okay. would say that once the state, once the prosecution and the state, and I regard them as the same, once they had firmly convinced themselves that Fred was the man, they went all out to to nail him. Okay, to the extent, to the extent where one of the prosecutors went to the forensic expert and said to her, "It would help me if you found blood on the hammer." And that's why I said I was going to return to Charlene Otto. And Charlene Otto is the police DNA. She's the superstar of DNA in the police laboratories in Cape Town and probably countrywide. I have a very high regard for her. Um, she said, but I didn't find blood on the hammer. And the prosecutor said to her, well, it would help me if you did. Gee. Sheesh. That should have come out at the trial. It didn't come out at the trial. My but it's well, it's well known to the defense. It's well known. I published that in my book. And I met up with the other prosecutor at the restaurant opposite the course, and he said to me, she's very cross with you for saying that. I said, well, she's got her remedies. Let her sue me. And she didn't sue me. So the point is, the point is that often the state play this game to win, not to see that justice is done. And that's wrong. That's not what the game is about. The vet about Devet has a question for you. He says, was Bartholomew ever taken to task for lying? You see, I've just written it. I've written a, a, a scientific academic paper about this. The, the, judge, the judge was a lovely man uh, by the name of Dion Fonsell, who is one of the foremost Latin scholars, legal Latin scholars in the country. Dion, Dion was a very fine scholar. As a criminal judge, he had no experience why he should have been given this case to hear as his penultimate case, and it was his, it was, it was his final case, actually. Um, why he should have been given this is a mystery to me, because he doesn't have the street savvy to hear this sort of case. And I would have expected, Dion, after, certainly after Bartholomew gave that evidence, and certainly after Moritz gave the evidence, I would have expected uh, Dion to write a report to the Attorney General and recommend the prosecution for perjury. I mean, he had a, he had a, he had a, he was spoiled for choice about what he could have charged them with. The attorney general could have charged them with straight perjury, and that would have been easy to prove. Uh, interfering with the course of justice. Second charge. I mean, it would have been a slam dunk case that he could have put both of those guys away, and they should have been thrown out of the police force. And and Bruce is out of the police force now, by the way. Um, he's gone into private. Mm. Uh, with as a security officer for some delivery company or some company or, or other. Um, and he pitched up in my office a few years ago. And I said to him, Bruce, who was lying? Because there, there are two versions which are, which are mutually destructive. Who was lying? Was it you or was it Bodziak? And he said, no, Bodziak lied. He, he made that up. He was paid by Fred's parents. Now, that's rubbish because Bodziak didn't need to be he was number one he was retired on a very healthy pension number two he didn't need he wasn't planning to come out here number three for him to put his reputation on the line by lying about a footprint is just beyond beyond comprehension it wouldn't have been so so bruce is firmly in his own mind uh, convinced that bodziak lied and that he told the truth but when you look at the actual facts and when you look at the actual footprint itself the footprint is not linkable to that shoe under any way, shape, or term. It doesn't fulfill even the basic criteria of a comparison 
between two items. Now, I know that this doesn't count as as evidence, but what did Fred say where, where he was that day? Was he at work? Fred, no, it, it does count as evidence. Fred was Fred was number one. He was at Old Mutual. Okay, he was in and out of uh, his office at Old Mutual um, until. Uh, he signed out of Old Mutual, and there's and there's there's records on his computer when he logged off his computer, and there's eyewitness evidence of his mate in the office saying, "I watched him log out at this time," and by the way, the police put pressure on him to change his evidence, uh, the the friend, which is wrong. You take a statement and you live with that statement. Anyway, they they tried to they tried to break that time that he left, but there's clear cut evidence of when Fred left Old Mutual, when he drove out, when he checked out. And when he logged off his computer and between that period and the time he went home and he had supper and did a few things. And then they delivered a cupboard to a friend of his in the same complex that he lived in. Um, and only then did they start looking for Inga. And that's when the hue and cry came up. And that's when they sent a friend who found the body at half past 10. Um, Cause she was, she was studying and sometimes she used to switch her cell phone off. But once, once, they couldn't break that alibi and they tried hard. I can tell you now they tried hard and had they broken that alibi, Fred would be in jail. There's no question about it, but they couldn't. And even if he had, even if there was that window of opportunity, I forget just how many minutes it was. It was not sufficient time for Fred to drive from his property in, 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 in uh, Pine town to Stellenbosch, that's a busy road. You mean, sorry, Pine, Pinelands, sorry. Pine, Pinelands, yeah, Pine, I do mean Pinelands. Pinelands, to drive to Stellenbosch. Presumably, you don't drive there, walk into the flat and murder your girlfriend without a few words before and to say why you're going to murder her, and mm. then wash and get back out of there and get back in time to look perfectly normal in order to interact with his friend. There just wasn't enough time, and the priest tried hard about that. The other strange thing about it is this, that given the fact that the central piece of evidence against Fred was the DVD cover, given that fact, let's assume it was a fact, the police allegedly lifted the print from that DVD cover. Now, when you lift a print from, a, from an item, signs of you lifting the print remain. So there's the sign of the of the fingerprint powder and there's the sign of the fingerprint and how you lift it in its orientation, etc., on the item from which you lifted it. So if you lift a fingerprint from an oak table, the background will show you that you've lifted it from an oak table. In this particular instance, had they kept that DVD and had it shown what they say it showed, that would have been enough. But you know what? The police gave it back to the DVD shop. Vital piece of evidence. <laughs> now, that that from a pair of officers who had collectively between them probably close to 50 years of experience. I don't think so. I think that that was done because it meant that nobody could ever check on it again. It's a small item. You could have put it in an evidence bag and kept it. It was worth maybe a rand. It wasn't as though you were depriving the DVD shop of any vital piece of of, any, of, of value, but they gave it back. Um, okay, so Sam Sam has asked a couple of times, so let me just quickly get to his question. He wants to know, David, um, are there any gang connections that you know no, of? 
Not that I know of. Not that I know of. And and adding to that, um, someone was asking, do you do you know anything about the alleged sex club, the the wolves, if he recalls? Yeah, no, they weren't called the wolves. They were called the Wolverines, and they seemed to be. A, again, it's a mixed story. Uh, there were a number of Inga's friends, okay, who seemed to be confused young men. They were confused as to their sexuality, and they had a semi-homosexual club going. Uh, called the Wolverines. But nobody's ever been able to link the Wolverines in any way, shape, or form to this murder. Merely the fact that she was friendly with them and they were a bunch of sexually confused young semi-adolescents. Oh, okay. So it's really that that simple. Eduardo uh, wants to know, uh, who else would have been considered suspects other than Fred? You know, I'd love to answer that question, mm. but I can't without getting myself sued. But I think I think it was probably probably somebody senior in the Stellenbosch community. Okay, there there are two sets. I mean, number one, Fred was involved with a, a church called his People's Church, which was very intrusive. Now, I I don't know that it's that healthy to have such an intrusive. Uh, being a persona involved in your relationship all the time. But certainly Inga was involved with a, n- a number of groups in the area, any one of which could have had a motive to murder her. Um, and I don't want to take it any further than that because sure. I think I don't have evidence. It's just that if you look at it, um, you say, well, who would want to murder in such a vicious way? Somebody who'd obviously lost the plot with her. And 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 then stabbed her. She was stabbed about seventeen times and bludgeoned many times on the head with a hammer. And you know the other interesting thing about it is it's, it's unusual to swap to swap murder weapons. And there was some suggestion there might have been more than one murderer, but I don't think there was ever any evidence other than the. Uh, and did nobody did nobody anywhere see anything like uh, anybody coming into the flat? No. Nobody saw anything. The other thing which I haven't, which I've omitted to tell you is this, is that Inga was not exactly dressed for going out. She was dressed in quite skimpy attire when she was found on the couch, the the sort of attire that you wouldn't entertain strangers in. It was very loose fitting Ah. and sort of bedroom attire. Um, You mean like like lingerie? Well, it wasn't lingerie, but it was a skimpy shorts and, and, and a skimpy top. Okay. Now, there was no sign of forced entry. So whoever got into the flat and killed her came in either by stealth, okay, which there's no evidence that that happened, or was somebody known to Inga. And that was another reason why the police focused on Fred. I mean, she would easily have been able to to, to meet with Fred and talk to Fred, uh, wearing that sort of attire, but certainly not a stranger. She would never have let anybody in while she was dressed that way. Sure, that's strange, David. Um, someone else says, um, someone else wants to know, do you have any idea where where Fred is today and what he's up to? Well, yeah, I know exactly where Fred is today. And he's, is, he's, is, it, is, it, is it public knowledge? I mean, everything's closed now, he's safe. 
Well, I think he's safe, yeah, but I don't think this is appropriate to discuss it. But he's no, no, no. I'm not, I'm not asking for that. I'm just wanting to know if he's living a normal life. Yeah, he is. He's married. Uh, he's. Um, I've recently been in touch with his father, um, and um, there's no question about he's leading a normal life. He's plying his trade as an actuary, um, and uh, yeah, life goes on, except for Inga. Jeez, and uh, so. Do her family have they just now let it go as as unresolved? Well, they did and they didn't. They were they they were uh, hot to pursue Fred civilly after this matter. Okay, now um, in a strange way, I had I had nothing to do with the family except to say that that subsequently Professor Lotz, young Lotz, came to see me. Uh, to ask me to continue the search for Inga's killer, which I agreed to do, and I agreed to do at no charge. Okay, I could never charge a man who's been through that uh, trauma, uh, take his money for something which was going to be so difficult and probably going to be non-productive of anything useful. So the net result of all of that, that I spent a lot of time, and I spent a significant amount of time chatting to young lots, and a, a kinder, nicer, more erudite, superhuman being would be hard to find on this planet. I've never met his wife, but uh, the point is that, uh, yeah, nothing's ever going to happen about it. It's not going to go any further than this, um, unfortunately. Yeah. So people somebody confesses. People in the comments are asking, uh, they might have missed what you said earlier, but the case is closed. case is closed. Once, once you've been found not guilty in a criminal matter, you can never be charged again, or it's under highly unusual circumstances that you can be charged again. So what, you, what you're saying is that the killer, actually, he's just living a normal life going on, and he knows that he killed her, and... and no question about that. The killer is out there, living a normal life, and he's managed to get away with it. Before you and I started talking um, in this conversation, you said to me that um, that there, there was also a bit of a travesty of of truth going on here. In what what did you mean by that? Did you mean that 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 the media uh, tried to push this into a, a non factual direction? Yes, the media. The media. Were, the media had a hundred and one things. I mean, there was an allegation in the media that Fred's father chopped off his mother's fingers in a fit of rage. So, in other words, trying to make out a story that there was some kind of familial rage problem that went through the family. Okay. Now, last time I saw uh, Mrs. Van der Feyfer, Fred's mother, she appeared to have ten fingers. I don't think she seemed to have any. <laughs> uh, um, and there was an allegation that Fred had murdered somebody in Bloemfontein, none of which was true. Okay. All of which was designed to push public opinion against Fred. Eduard has got an interesting question. He says, uh, does Fred have, or did Fred have any suspicions of who then it might have been? No. My word. No. It's like a movie. There, there were, there were suspicions that I had closer, closer to home, 
in Pinelands, uh, but we could never prove them. We just couldn't prove them. Okay, and so one of, one of the people who fell into that framework was never investigated by the police. And this is this is the danger of of premature adjudication. When the police have decided it's you and they go all out to find you, you can usually find or manufacture evidence to to cause you trouble. But but it's it's not it's not the way to do an investigation. You've got to approach it with an open mind, and you've got to look at all the evidence and the evidence which exonerates as well as the, on a, the evidence which incriminates. And there'll always be a bit of both in in any investigation you've done. I've done I've done something like four thousand investigations. And there's always, it's it's always a bit of both that comes into it. There are facts that will prove the case against your client, facts that will exonerate your client, and you've got to weigh them up and look at them and present everything to the court. Not for you to make that decision. David, what should have happened from the start? Well, the first thing that should have happened is they should have they should have closed off the premises. Okay, so they. You put barrier tape up and you put a scene of crimes officer on duty who doesn't let anybody in without a reason. You don't go and just have a, a, a prurient look at the place. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that the the way in which the fingerprints were lifted and what have you should have been carefully monitored. A senior A senior fingerprint officer should have been there to do the work and to lift the prints, not some greenhorn like Elton John. Okay. Uh, he was he was a, a baby, you know. He was a baby in the game. Sorry, I can't get past his name. <laughs> Clearly, his, his folks were quite keen on Elton John. Uh, but poor old Elton John Schwartz became a bit of a patsy in the whole thing, and 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 he was he was he was hung out to dry. Uh, so you should have had somebody senior. Mm. Number three, once once you found that the fingerprint didn't work for you, okay. Uh, you should have abandoned that fingerprint, which is in fact what happened. Uh, the prosecutor, Christinus von der Pfeiffer, actually said to the court, we're not relying on the fingerprint. <clears throat> the, 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 the defense made, in fact, in my view, a tactical error, which cost them a lot of money. In Sorry, you're going to have a bit of nine o'clock chimes here. <laughs> the, the, um, the defense made, in my view, what was a tactical error, in pursuing the fingerprint, attempting to prove that it was fraudulently done, as opposed to a fingerprint that was just negligently done. Right. And one of the things that is a dictum of mine is that I never ascribe to conspiracy or fraud what can be explained equally well by incompetence. And that fingerprint was certainly one that would have been very well explained by simple incompetence. However, the defense subsequently, in order to retrieve the money, launched a civil trial. And in the criminal trial, what they did was they pursued the evidence of the fingerprint to prove that it was fraudulently done, that they deliberately, that they lifted it from a glass and swapped the prints around. That's what they tried to uh, prove, that the cops had fraudulently Jeez. done that. Now, I don't think that was done. I think that, that I think it probably did come from a glass, or it came from a curved surface. Okay, but I don't believe, until I've got some evidence, mm. that the police did that fraudulently. I think that was just Elton John being 
being properly incompetent. Kevin wants to know, um, he says, yeah, was the flatmate that wrote the love letter, he says, I think it was Buerta, investigated and cleared? No. And it wasn't Buerta. Uh, it was. It might have been Buerta, yes, sorry, sorry. Yeah, he... Uh, he was never he was never mainstream in the investigation. Hang on, she had a flatmate. No, no, Fred had a flatmate. Fred had a flatmate. Sorry, Fred had a flatmate. Okay, the investigation of the flatmate fell far short of of adequate. Someone's asking, what about the use of a lie detector? Was was such a thing used? No, lie detectors. It's called a polygraph, mm. and. A polygraph has no place in the South African court system, and for a very good reason. There are people who swear by the polygraph. But effectively, what a polygraph does is it measures your heart rate, your breathing rate, and it measures whether you sweat or not on the basis that if you lie, your autonomic nervous system, your adrenaline kicks in and you sweat and your heart rate goes up. Okay, But there are many things which cause these changes. Number one, simply, simply an inappropriate question asked by the investigator. You know, if somebody said to me, uh, did you murder this person? I mean, immediately mm. my hack would rise. Even if I hadn't murdered the person, there'd be a change in my polygraph. And the problem with polygraphy is that it's based, I, I, I call it junk science. There okay. are many people who swear by it, but as far as I'm concerned, it's junk science. I mean, it might be that you just simply find yourself attracted to your cross-examiner mm. make a change in your polygraph. But, the, but the, what I'm saying to you is that there is no linkage between the changes in your autonomic system, your autonomic nervous function, and lying. There's change with lots of other things. I mean, fight, mm. the, the fight flight response right. is a well-known biological yeah. change. Yeah. But many things can cause it. And in fact, you know, it goes back to the ancient times. I mean, in the ancient Chinese would take a hot sword and have you touch it with your tongue on the basis that if you were if you were nervous your tongue would be dry and you'd burn yourself. And Gee. if you weren't nervous, your tongue would be wet and you wouldn't burn yourself. That's quite clever, though. Well, yeah, except that it's it's equally it's equally fallacious. Yeah. There lots of, I mean, if you're hauled before a, a Chinese court in those days, mm. I mean, your tongue would be dry. On a, you know, It's like the old one of dunking witches. Yeah. If they dunked you in the pool and you drowned, it meant that you were innocent, which was great for you, despite the fact you were drowned. And if you weren't, it meant the devil had rejected you. Mm. Okay, so David, uh, one last one last question because we've we've gone slightly over time. Um, what was my question now? Damn it! Uh, oh yes, <laughs> can we can we assume though that this wasn't a random murder? I don't think it was a random murder. No. Okay, so somebody knew her. Yeah, I think somebody knew her. Nothing was stolen from the flat. The only things missing were the serrated knife. Okay, that was never found. Or the knife or the instrument that was used to stab her. And the remote control to get out of the to get out of the premises. It was a gated property. There was nothing stolen? No. Jeez. And there was no sign of a struggle. She was sitting on a couch. She was sitting on a couch with her back to the front door when the, the assault took place. And she never moved from that couch. Where, where in the apartment was she when she was found? In the lounge, looking at the television. 
you you came in and you walked in through a little open plan kitchen. Mm. To the right of that was a very short corridor from which there was a guest bathroom, a spare room, and a main bathroom with a bathroom, a uh, main bedroom with a bathroom en suite. Okay, uh, in the lounge was a was a TV and um, uh, a lounge, a, a sofa on which she was lying with her back to the door. So there was no sign that she was in any way disturbed. Whoever did it came upon her suddenly and viciously in a way which prevented her. And her hands were folded across her lap. She was, had a magazine in her lap. And there was no evidence of any kind of substances, like drugs or anything? No. Gee. No. no, nothing like that ever. She was as clean as a whistle as far as that was concerned. It's and so, so was Fred. Fred was not a drug abuser. He, he didn't even drink. Sure. You know, he, uh, neither of them were, were abusers. I mean, they, they were both students of mathematics, which requires a high level of cognitive functioning. You can't become a drug addict and become a senior, a serious mathematician in any way, shape or form. And both of them were right at, um, she was right at the top of her academic qualifications, about to graduate and, and finish a thesis. He, 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 qualified as an actuary, it, it doesn't require a lack of brains to do that. It requires a serious ability. Um, and Sam says that he, he is convinced and therefore it was premeditated. I don't think so. I think the level of viciousness of the attack shows a frenzy, um, which I don't think was premeditated. I think that, you know, if somebody... If, if you lose it with somebody, you would expect that level of viciousness in the murder. Gen generally, when you murder a, a wife or a husband or something, one or two shots will do, will do the trick. Not not empty two magazines into them. That, that shows more. And the knife was from her apartment? We don't know. We never found it. Jeez. It was never found. Okay, never found. But you know there are there are facts that that are ascertainable. I mean, we know we know roughly she died in between four o'clock and ten o'clock that night, and and she'd been dead a while when she was found. Okay, so we know that. So she was probably murdered earlier in the evening. And it was somebody who was somebody who didn't climb over the wall. Although you could get in by waiting for a car to come in and then just walking in. But somebody would have seen that. It, it's likely that she let whoever it was in. And whoever it was used the remote to get out again. Yo. You know, there, there, were, there were some very uh, peripheral investigations into people who claimed that they'd seen they were jailbirds and drug addicts and things. But that investigation never went anywhere. Never went anywhere at all. As, as it stands, somebody who knew Inga was invited into the flat, murdered her in a vicious temper, left the flat, and left Fred to take the heat. Yeah, Lucy must have joined a little bit late because she's asking, uh, did she know her killer? No, David doesn't know. And... I think so. I think she must have known her killer. Yeah, yeah, but, but it's not, yeah. I mean, that's the assumption, though, but nobody knows who the killer is. No. I mean, 
you generally generally don't wear a very loose pair of shorts and a skimpy top if you're going to invite strangers into your house. Mm. The tiler or the builder or the mm. delivery man or what have you, you wouldn't do that. You put on a dressing gown or you do something of that nature. But she was quite casually, lightly, very lightly, skimpily attired on the couch. <clears throat> and there was not not a not not a shred of force. Yeah, but hang on a second. You said that she was neat, neatly on the couch. So obviously, whoever it was, put her in that position. No, not no. I don't think so. Uh, the blood spatter evidence on the floor behind her from the head wound, okay, uh, indicated that that's where she was murdered. There's no blood apart from the footprint anywhere else in the flat. And somebody washed up something in the sink. There was bloodstains in the in the in the wash hand basin in the guest bathroom. So somebody obviously either washed their hands, because to do that kind of damage to the body, you would have required quite a lot of quite a lot of back spatter of blood onto you, onto your shoes. Where was she stabbed? She was stabbed in the throat and in the chest. So badly in the chest, they severed her, they severed her ribs. And she was bashed all over the head. It's 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 the, the ugly, nasty photographs of her body. It it was it was a vicious attack on a defenseless young girl. And I think she was rendered in incapable of responding after the first maybe one or two blows. Yo. Yeah. Sad, sad, sad. Could should never have happened to good people like the Lotzes, and it should never have happened to Fred and his family. It's put immense strain on his family as well. But the people, the people who are the apart from Inga, who are the true victims of this, are the Lotzes. And strangely enough, after this all transpired, there were a couple of less than straightforward attorneys who persuaded Lotz Senior uh, to. Um, uh, to go after Fred civilly. Now, he could never have done that. The, the legal basis for him to pursue Fred civilly would have been the cost of the funeral, really. And it was never, never, uh, the game was never going to be worth the candle. And he was never going to get past the dishonest evidence, the only evidence, which was dishonest and stupid and incompetent. He was never going to get past that. But they relieved Lot Senior of a lot of money to pursue this case. And somebody who knew both the Duomini that attended to the lots and knew me came to see me. And I said, to, I sat down with him in my office in, 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 in Rondebosch and I said to him, this is the situation. They are wasting their money. Tell them to stop wasting their money. And I don't know whether my advice followed on or they followed my advice or not. I don't know. But they certainly stopped after that. And, and young lots did come and see me. Uh, to get me to pursue it. And I've got a file on Ingolot, but it's taken it nowhere. And as time goes by, unfortunately, evidence degrades. And unless we've got a deathbed confession or somebody who saw it or somebody who knew it or somebody who's got a remarkable turn of conscience, we're not going to find out. But there are many lives that have been ruined in the process. Yo, David, this is a tragic conversation. It is, yeah. Um. Listen, there have been a lot of people watching. Um, I'm, I'm without a doubt going to have you on again in a few days' time for yet another conversation. It would be um, my pleasure. Um, 
last time you and I spoke, I, I I I didn't actually give any any details to if people can contact you for anything. Can are they are you open to any Absolute. kind of? I'm open to helping. I've I spent the last 36 years helping people, and I'm happy to go on helping anybody that needs help. Do you have a, a website or just an email address? And I'll put that under the video. Yeah, I, my the best email uh, address to get me is David Klatzer, all lowercase, D-A-V-I-D-K-L-A-T-Z-O-W, 48 numerical, at gmail.com. I'll put that under the video. Yeah, and there's a second one which will probably also get me easily, and that is forensic singular f o r e n s i c at clatso dot com. Those yeah. will both get. Me. All right. So and 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 you you happy to offer some sort of services to people in need? I've done so for thirty six years, and All I right. can't see why I should stop now. Well, look, um, looking at the comments, uh, there's uh, a definite demand for, for you to return, and I'm sure there's lots to talk about. So, um, David, thank you so much, as always. Um, and, um, yeah, it's such a dark way to end a, or to start a, a week. I, I feel very, like, I feel very dirty now. Well, you don't have to because I think I think you've got to look at it from two points of view. It's a sad thing from from the Lotz's point of view. It's a tragic thing beyond the telling mm. thereof. But in a way, justice finally got to be done. And incidentally, I had tea with Dion Fonsell, the judge, uh, who 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 said to me quite openly uh, at, at tea. We we had a morning tea together in my office in in in, in Rondebosch. And he said to me he thought he'd made a mistake in not granting federal discharge at the end of the state case. And I agree with Dion on that. He should have. Mm. I don't know what motivated him not to. I think Dion was under a lot of pressure. Well, I guess I guess the silver lining is that uh, Fred came off as, uh, as he should have, uh, innocent. Yes. Yeah. But it should have been done with less, less fuss and bother. Mm. It really should have been done. And had everybody played by the rules, that's, I'm talking about the state side, then I think it would have occurred better. And and Ati Trollope was not known for his fair dealing. He was known as Mr. Fixit. And as I say, the, the attempt to change a, a key state witness's evidence, unacceptable. Unacceptable. That piece, of, that piece should have been pursued and prosecuted. And the person involved should know better. Had I, as a had, had I as a defence witness done that, I can tell you now, this conversation would have been on my release from prison. I would have been charged and prosecuted. Yeah. But that one of the problems. There's no accountability. And and by the way, it's not a peculiarly South African thing. It's a thing which occurs worldwide. So much so that in the States, there's called a Brady offense, and that's where the prosecutor does not give you exonerating evidence in an American court. And it happens. It happens here in Britain. Nobody's, nobody's immune from it. Everybody thinks as the uh, prosecutors that they, that they ride a white horse mm-hmm. and they're protecting people from the scourge of crime. They are, and they do, to a large extent, a good job. But there's a lot of skullduggery that goes on. Trust me. We David- can talk about but if you want to we will these. yeah we will um i'll i'll chat you offline um thank you to everybody who uh watched i 
thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I can see by the comments that lots of people did. David, thank you so much. I hope you have a great day. Thank you very much, Jim. And goodbye to all your listeners. Cheers, everybody. Beautiful beautiful summer's day in England. (laughs) It's winter, yeah. (laughs) Ciao. Good.